Enjoy this best of show, Case in Point, from our old radio network. This show first aired live on January 26, 2019. Suzanne's guest for this episode was Dave Benner. He is an author and a historian, and they will be discussing Fletcher versus Peck. Welcome, everybody, to episode four of Case in Point. I'm your host, Suzanne Sherman, and this is the Cerberus Radio Network, where we defend liberty and freedom from the flames of tyranny. We have a special episode today. We're going to be talking about a case that is pretty much obscure to most everybody out there. It's called Fletcher v. Peck, but I'm going to explain why this is relevant and why this really matters going back in time. We're so caught up in all the battles of what's happening today, but this has been foundational in the dismantling of our federal constitutional republic. I want to remind you, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Cerberus Radio Network. We have a fan page also, CRN. You can follow me, Suzanne Sherman's The Wasatch Report radio show as well. We have a YouTube account, a SoundCloud account as well. Please like, share, follow, tell your friends. We talk about stuff on this network you won't hear anywhere else. We give you the background as to why we are, where we are today, and how possibly we can fix it. And if it can't be fixed, what we can do to survive in this post-constitutional society. I'm joined today by my very good friend, Dave Benner, he is a historian. He actually calls himself an amateur uh, historian. That's bogus. This guy really knows his stuff. He is the author of two of my favorite books on, on our constitutional republic. One of, his, one of them is Compact of the Republic, the League of States and the Constitution. The other is the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine. Dave, we've done a show on that before. I think we're going to have to do that again. But let's talk today about Fletcher V. Peck. First of all, I want you to introduce yourself. Dave Benner, how are you today? Good. Thanks, Suzanne Jeff, for having me. I'm glad to be back. Um, as you said, I do consider myself an amateur historian because I don't do it professionally, but it is totally my driving passion. So I really appreciate being invited on again. Yes. And now you have a series that you record called History in a Nutshell. Let's uh, talk about that momentarily and how people can follow you. And then we will remind them at the end of the show, because by the time we are done here. I know they're going to want that information again. Yeah, so Compact of the Republic can be found at www.davebenner.com. I also have my YouTube site where I do history in a nutshell videos where I condense historical topics related to the founding period into bite-sized portions of six to eight minutes. And I also have a podcast right now covering the War for Independence. So thank you. You are so welcome. I just had a friend of mine today say that she's not sending her grandchildren to college. She's going to be sending them to trade schools as she wants to avoid, avoid the indoctrination. Shows like this, your website, Liberty Classroom, are means by which you can still understand history, economics, law, philosophy without the indoctrination and still pursue a, a trade and a career. That being said, let's get into the meat and taters of this show. We talk all the time about the difference between the Constitution as ratified and constitutional law 
which unfortunately is a product of the malfeasance of the legal education industry. Lawyers in training, such as myself, are taught a version of the Constitution that is a product of case law, not the Constitution is ratified. Dave's going to explain for you the difference. We're going to get into the facts of a case called Fletcher v. Peck out of 1810, Supreme Court case, and why this illustrates the difference between what I call the two constitutions. Dave, why don't you get into the background of Fletcher v. Peck? All right. So following the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American War for Independence with Britain, uh, the states claimed, claimed vast westward territory. Almost all of them did. Georgia was no exception. And during this process, Georgia expanded its territory essentially to the Mississippi River into areas that are now considered Mississippi and Alabama. Well, Georgia decided to split that territory into four different chunks of land. These were called the Yazoo lands. And sales were made by the legislature to various land speculators. But what happened here that made this case so controversial was that it was discovered that bribes had been accepted by the legislators um, to sell the land to the investors. So once the bribes were discovered, it implicated almost every member of the Georgia legislature. I think it was all but two or something like that. Well, there was a big controversy that unfolded during this time because one of the tracts of land, one of the speculators sold a piece of that tract to another when the original law was still in effect. But when a new legislature of Georgia representatives was elected in 1796, they passed a law that reversed the sale because it was coded in fraud and bribery. So that's basically how the conflict started. I'll stop there in case there's follow-ups. Let's, let's talk a little bit. Who exactly were these land speculators? Because when we talk about land speculators, I'm kind of thinking about these financiers and investors kind of emanating from the New York area. And I don't know if that's the case, but this seems to hearken the sentiments of the conflict of the Hamiltonians versus the Jeffersonians here, where the Hamiltonians, and we're going to do a show on this separately, really wanted a, a strong financial economy, central government, and the as opposed to the decentralized Jeffersonians. Was this really a homegrown scandal, or, or does this kind of smell of, of New England meddling in southern areas? Um, I don't think, I think it was more homegrown. You're right that, you know, there were land speculators all throughout the country, including in Virginia. And ironically, John Marshall was one of the greatest land speculators of his time. We can talk about how that could possibly have caused him to re possibly recuse himself of this case. Um, but yeah, this was more of a homegrown issue. And let it be known that um, these types of arrangements existed in almost all the states. So what we have here now, is a land deal that was brought about by a bribe. In law school, we are taught in contracts, we all take a course in contracts, that contracts to be valid must be entered into freely and voluntarily with certain indefinite terms, time for performance. Most importantly, they must be entered into in the absence of fraud. So here we have a situation where, as you said, the legislators that granted these land sales were bribed. So that to me smacks of a fraudulent transaction. But the problem is the land was resold when that law was in effect. So what did Georgia do to try and undo the fraudulent character of these transactions? 
Right. So Georgia, once they had elected the new assembly, um, they enacted a law to reverse the original sales because they were coded in fraud, as you mentioned. And that's what kind of sparked the controversy because one of the sub-investors of the land, while the, the original act was still in effect, bought land from John Peck, who was one of the overarching speculators. And he said, well, John Peck doesn't, didn't have the title to this land when it was sold to me, so I'm due um, some financial uh, compensation for this. Well, he certainly would be entitled to damages had the law been allow allowed to stand. So let's, un let's look now. We have a state law that is undoing a fraudulent contract. It seems to me that this would be well within the providence of the citizens of the state of Georgia to address via their elected representatives and replace those that showed themselves uh, willing to take a bribe. So we have a state law undoing these contracts, but the feds step in because of the contracts clause. As we know, the general government set up under the constitution as ratified was a system where the states were superior to the general government in the areas they did not delegate certain uh, expressly delegated powers. All of those not expressly delegated remained with the states. That's the heart and soul of federalism. It is spelled out unquestionably in the 10th Amendment. We have something also called the uh, Contracts Clause. There are certain powers, certain actions that were prohibited to the states. So the federal government comes in here now from a legal perspective saying, well, this is a violation of the Contracts Clause of the Constitution that says no law can come out from the states impairing the obligation of contracts. So we have fraudulent contracts occurring within the state addressed by state officials, yet somehow this is considered a federal issue. Why don't you get into the history behind that? Yeah, so you set it up perfectly. So what ended up happening is when the feds intervened in this, um, the Supreme Court issued an opinion saying that, well, Georgia's reversal of the fraud would be a violation of Article 1, Section 10, the Contracts Clause, which prohibits any state from passing laws that impair the obligation of contracts. However, what's key to note here, and you set this up, is that it is a universally held legal maxim that any contracts set up that are uh, coded in fraud are not binding. And this was reiterated in some of the most important legal terminology and documents of the time, including, as our good friend Kevin Gutzman points out in one of his works, the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, where there was a passage in there that said explicitly contracts that are coded in bribery and fraud are not binding. Explain, we mentioned John Marshall. Why don't you explain his role or absence thereof and significant in this case? So John Marshall was the third Supreme Court Justice of the United States. At this point, he is still kind of the lead uh, federalist, nationalist-oriented force in the federal judiciary. Um, at the time, the judiciary delivered uh, opinions in seriatim, meaning that each judge would write his own opinion. But Marshall kind of did whatever he could to kind of steer the judiciary to one particular point. And Marshall made this point clear that he thought that Georgia's reversal of the fraud violated the contracts clause, which in its original ratified state wouldn't have included uh, law, uh, arrangements that were fraudulent. 
clearly at the state level, there could have been some form of redress for the gentleman who purchased this from Peck, or is Peck the purchaser? Peck sold the land to Robert Fletcher. So yes, so clearly there could have been some other redress, but rather than having a matter of a fraudulent contract being handled within the state, the Supreme Court gets involved. And do you think the Supreme Court's involvement, notwithstanding the contract clause, was a valid form of federal uh, judiciary, uh, their, their exercise, or do you think it was an overreach? I do think this is one of the cases of federal overreach early on in the history of United States jurisprudence, because under the original ratified version, it's not a contract if there's fraud, if it's bribery involved in the contract. And as you said, Georgia should have had the purview over this matter to determine the best course for its citizens and its state. It's pretty ridiculous and ludicrous for Marshall to have opined, and he's not the only one. Um, This was a uh, unanimous opinion, I believe, um, including with a concurrence from William Johnson, who was Jefferson's appointee, even concurred with this. So I I think it was a wrong. It was an early precedent that set the federal judiciary to intermingle in the matters of the states. And, you know, that wouldn't take off in total until the incorporation doctrine, which we've talked about. But this was an early example where Marshall was asserting the power of the federal government down the state's throats. And that's why I try to explain to people this stuff goes way, way back, and it might not be the most compelling or interesting stuff to pay attention to, but it clearly sets the precedence because if you go back to what was proposed at the Philadelphia Convention, going back to looking uh, at the Virginia plan, what was proposed was one of the elements, a veto, a federal legislative veto over state laws. This was rejected outright. Now, what we have is not exactly a legislative veto from the federal government going to the states, but we have the same effect, don't we? The practical effect when the federal judiciary steps in and circumvents our system of federalism. Nationalism is starting to rear its ugly head where the states evolve or devolve, we should say, into the Hamiltonian goal of mere subsidiaries of the whole. The sad thing is this case should have been an anomaly. It has set the precedence for the norm. And then another case that you and I are going to discuss on another show, Barron versus Baltimore, unfortunately, and strangely enough with Justice Marshall, became the anomaly. So we don't really see this. In law school, let me give the legal perspective now. You did a fantastic historical analysis on this. In law school, The fraudulent nature of the original transaction is completely downplayed, if not outright ignored. We are taught in law school that whenever the Supreme Court rules on something in contravention to the principles, the foundation of our system here or not, it is gospel. We are never taught, never do they discuss in law school. And this is not just because I went to some night law school in California. This is this is across the board. When we even have Supreme Court justices getting the Constitution wrong, again, it is a project, it is a product of the malfeasance of the legal education system. For example, the 14th Amendment going now, skipping ahead in time, is always for <laughs> when you take the bar exam. If you have a choice between the 10th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, they tell you in law review courses to just skip ahead and always answer for the purposes of expediency the 10th Amendment. 
I'm, I'm sorry, the 14th Amendment. The 10th Amendment is always the answer. The 14th leads us directly to the Philadelphia Convention rejection of the Virginia plan. So as law students and future, unfortunately, legislators, uh, future pundits on the mainstream media, they always give their analysis from the from the position of what is the case law. We never discussed, for instance, the preamble to the Bill of Rights, what the Bill of Rights were intended to do. It is always the Supreme Court has spoken and it almost always errs on the side of expanding the national government. And uh, this, is, this is the problem, folks. This is why we are where we are today. This is why everybody is anxiously waiting with bated breath for what the Supreme Court says about abortion, about marriage, about firearms. This is not, well, let me ask you, do you think this is uh, a, a natural progression of what we, what we ratified in the Constitution? No, I don't. I think that the Constitution was to be protected and defended. And by the Constitution, I mean the originally ratified Constitution, because as Jefferson and Madison said, the only way to extrapolate meaning and to interpret the Constitution is in the manner in which it was delivered to the people by its friends. And by friends, that means supporters of the Constitution. So I think it's overreach. You explained it perfectly. We now have a judiciary on the federal level, which exists on the basis of stare decisis, which means government essentially by precedent, rather than going back to what the original context was and deciding um, controversies on that account. Great discussion. Dave, I want to thank you for joining me to do this show today. Again, repeat where people can hear you, where they can follow you. This stuff is important. It matters. It affects how we live our lives today. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. So you can find anything I do on www.davebenner.com. That includes my books, my podcast, and my History in a Nutshell videos that I'm putting up on YouTube. Even if you're kind of a layman in some of these realms and your interest in history is just kind of um, broad, I'm not putting you through you know two hours of lectures on each of these subjects. You can ingest this stuff quickly, and I hope people are interested by it. They should be because you do a great job. It is concise. It's important. We all have short attention spans that are very busy, but you know, people can always go and look further. I, again, I encourage people to read your book, Compact of the Republic, and especially the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine. That wraps up this episode of Case in Point. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Jeff, for helping us get the show out there. I'm Suzanne Sherman. This is the Cerberus Radio Network, where we defend liberty and freedom from the flames of tyranny. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.